Hi, it's Mark Bittman, and welcome to Food. As always, you can reach us at food at markbittman.com, and please subscribe to this podcast and consider subscribing to our newsletter as well. That's called The Bittman Project, and you can find it at bitmanproject.com or markbitman.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to what is definitely one of our most thought-provoking episodes yet. Today, we have anthropologist Barbara King and reducitarian Brian Cateman. Barbara, whose work I've admired for years, has focused much of her esteemed and enlightened career on the inner lives of animals, especially primates, octopuses, squid, pigs, and dolphins, arguing that humanity should consider how best to communicate and accommodate these species' lives without anthropomorphization or exploitation. Brian coined the term reducitarian to describe a person who's deliberately reducing their consumption of meat. He's the co-founder and president of the Reducitarian Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to reducing consumption of animal products. Clearly, the work that Barbara, Brian, and I do intersects in meaningful ways, and this conversation reflects that well, if I do say so myself. Interestingly, none of us is a vegan, but veganism and all of its implications do play a big role in our chat. I think you're going to find this really interesting, and I can't wait to hear your responses. Here we go. Barbara King and Brian Cateman, welcome to Food with Mark Bittman. I'm really happy to have you both here. 
Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you. You two and me all take different views of animal eating, but um, not necessarily incompatible. I'd like to focus on sort of practicalities, but it's going to be impossible not to get into philosophy. I think there's a lot of confusion in the general public about what veganism means and what it actually is and its benefits and um, why it exists. Brian, let me start with a question for you. There was a time not that long ago, 10 years ago, certainly 15 or 20, when what we might call ardent or militant or even just devoted vegans were hostile to the idea of any person eating any animal product. And then there came a time, and you you and I discussed this a long time ago, but the first individuals who were saying this kind of thing to me, when those people, let's say some militant vegans, began to understand that this was going to be a gradual process, that the eating of less meat was a desirable thing, even if it meant the eating of no meat. So that's a process. And um, I tried to invent a couple of names for it that didn't work, and you invented Reducitarian. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that history from your point of view. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, look, first of all, veganism makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways, even militant veganism. I think you look around the world and you see how animals are raised for food and I think we all might have an impulse to be shouting in the streets and saying this is just morally not correct. And one of the things that we should do is to cut out animal products in order to abstain from that suffering. So I'm sympathetic to um, vegans and militant vegans, however you want to describe that community. But yeah, I grew up in Staten Island, New York with you know eating McDonald's and Burger King and KFC every day. I mean, that's sincerely what my diet was. And I, you know, I, my parents are still on this planet. And if you spent a couple minutes with them, you would realize how silly it is to tell them to go vegan because that's really not what's going to happen in, in their lives. And so, you know, I do think part of the problem was that there really wasn't a sort of organized movement, word, identity that celebrated people, not necessarily for being vegan or vegetarian or even flexitarian, but celebrated their effort to cut back on the amount of animal products that they consumed, that even if it wasn't necessarily all or nothing, that was acceptable given the constraints of the world around us. And when I first launched the Reducitarian movement, there were a lot of angry emails. There were protests from some from meat eaters who didn't want to be told to eat less meat, but also from, I would say, a small percentage of vegans who really did not believe in this idea of, of gradualism. However, I think that has significantly quieted, which is quite interesting. You know, I think there really has been a, a transition in how not just vegans, but how many people relate to food. And um, there's an understanding that this is going to, as you said, take time. This is going to be a gradual transition. And there are forces at play, many that make it difficult for people to even cut back on animal products. And so instead of only focusing on telling people what to do, we also have to change the food system around us so that it's easier to make that transition. I mean, I'll say I got married a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, and I 
told my mom and I don't identify as vegan and I does my wife, but I told my mom that our wedding was only going to serve vegan food. And when I told her that I could feel her, you know, tension build, building in her. Yeah. Very, very upset. And she said to me, what are the people who don't eat that kind of food going to eat? And that was a very insightful comment because we still live in a time, despite all the efforts of you and you know, Barbara and our colleagues, myself, we still live in a time where a lot of people still think vegan food is only for vegans. So to some extent, I think vegan before six and meatless Monday and the reducentarian movement and all of our efforts have helped, but there's still a lot of work to do. And in some ways, the trend is going another way. So I also want to put out a a sentiment of humility that I don't know how to actually make this happen. That's the thing. I'm doing my best, but it's, it's hard. Right. I feel the same way. I remember the first time I wrote that everybody was a part-time vegan because everybody is a part-time vegan. There's never been a culture, or let's say there've been hardly any cultures on this planet where people didn't eat mostly plants or at least some plants. But it's hard. It's funny that vegan, well, that we can get into issues of the word vegan, but let's talk with Barbara for a minute. Barbara, you approach this from a very different point of view, almost from a point of view that tries, well, from a point of view that tries to understand how animals feel. That's not necessarily distinguishing between how industrially raised animals and how normally raised animals feel, but we can maybe get into that too. But you've written a number of books about the consciousness of our fellow creatures, personalities on the plate, and um, how animals grieve, chief among them, or at least chief among them for our purposes here. You're not a self-described vegan, but you're a self-described near-vegan. What's your take on this? I'd like you to talk for a minute or two about how animals do feel or what we know about animals' emotions and sensibilities and how that leads us to thinking about raising and eating animals. Well, we're 60 years on now from Jane Goodall telling us about chimpanzee complexity both socially and in their use of technology. And I think a large part of the world is really prepared to understand that big-brained mammals like chimpanzees or orcas or elephants really do think and feel and lead complex lives. Where we're not really quite caught up is in thinking about these same things, the cognitive and emotional complexity of so-called food animals, And that's where I've put a lot of my energy in the last years in understanding what chickens and goats and cows and octopuses and fish may be able to tell us through their behavior about their ability to think and feel. Now, there's really a discrepancy between people just loving to hear about, you know, what are elephants doing? And not being so open to hearing about the animals on their plate having a good day or a bad day or being really smart or really thinking. And that's what I'm working to to change, to bring forward what science is telling us about these animals. So when I met a giant Pacific octopus at the New England Aquarium, I knew I was with a sentient animal you know that octopuses have neurons and brain matter in their arms. And this giant Pacific octopus came and explored me with one of his arms. And I knew 
that I was meeting an individual animal who was thinking as he was exploring me. We know that octopuses use tools and flash their moods on their skin. And to give one more example to start with, let's take cows. You know, they're often thought to be so placid and not really smart and nothing could be further from the truth. They have great memories and we know that dairy cow moms do experience and express grief when in the dairy industry over and over and over again, their offspring, their sons and daughters are taken from them within 24 to 48 hours because those kids don't get milk. That milk is reserved for humans. And so what I'm trying to say here is not only that other animals can approach something that we recognize as thinking and feeling, but that we have to get better at understanding all the ways that other animals think and feel. And it's one tool in the toolbox to bring to this discussion, to have people think about why plant-based eating is so incredibly important. We know it's good for the planet. We know it's good for our health, but we are eating animals who think and feel their lives profoundly. And bringing that forward, I believe, is an effective part of the conversation that we're all having. I do agree with you, Mark, that there's confusion about what veganism is. And I think the question of the the possibility of even being a part-time vegan is really important for this conversation because vegan activists, people that I know and perhaps aspire to be, would say that there's a tremendous gulf between being a vegan and being a plant-based eater, that being a vegan is a life ethical commitment, not only to who we don't eat, but to questions of you know fashion and entertainment and how animals are caught up in all these big systems. So it is certainly possible to be a part-time plant-based eater. But the question of being a part-time vegan is, is, is really, uh, I think, one that, that we could contest or problematize because there is a gulf between the two. It seems to me that plant-based is a meaningless term because we all eat plants. So the whole biomass on earth comes from plants. We have, even when we're eating animals, we're indirectly eating plants, but Mm -hmm. put that aside. We all eat spaghetti with tomato sauce. Yeah, I, I take your point. There's a marketing problem here, which is that we don't, I mean, with all due respect to Brian's reducitarian term, we don't have a popular way to describe eating more plants and less of and less of everything else that is less fewer animal products and less junk food which don't really doesn't really qualify as plants which we don't have to make part of this discussion but it's lingering in the background there we don't have a cool way to say it we can only say awkward things like eat fewer animal products is really not that hard but I mean, I agree with you when you contrast veganism as a lifestyle and veganism as a principle, then you're like putting an extreme position that is a life decision and a challenge against what what needs to be a moderate decision to eat fewer animal products. I mean, we could say that quote unquote true vegans or self-defined true vegans don't use any animal. It's not only they don't eat any animal products. They don't wear leather belts or or they don't eat honey, which is an animal product, but it's not 
obviously an animal. They don't exploit animals in any way, or they try not to exploit animals in any way. But what's important right now is for people to eat. That That's a very hard decision to make for most people, an alien to most people. And once you moderate it even a little bit, you know, I know a, I know a vegan that is a person who won't eat the products of any animals that have been raised to provide food for humans, but has pet chickens and will eat their eggs because, he says, he has friends who give him eggs. Why would he not eat them? That's already like moving off of the of the high ground in a way. I'm sure he's been attacked for that. I'm sure there are people hearing this who think that he's a hypocrite. This is part of my own confusion with the term vegan because I get the sense that I'm not perfect in any area of my life. Like we think a lot about food, but I try to call my mom as much as I should, but I don't, not always, I try to be a a decent husband, but I'm not always perfect. For me, what I get confused myself, and I don't know if you have thoughts on this, Barbara, is it seems like an impossible term. I mean, I almost think that veganism doesn't exist. I mean, my goal has always been to try to reduce as much suffering as possible to be the best person that I could possibly be. But sometimes when you when we get into the philosophy of veganism, it just feels like an impossible standard, even for a person that is trying really, really hard. And if, if veganism means doing the best that you possibly can, well, then how often can you fail and still be you know, part of that movement. And so that's, that's for me, why the word vegan never worked for me is I just, in no area of my life, do I ever feel like I reach the height of what I think some people feel when they identify as vegan or embracing veganism. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, Brian. I had a very interesting conversation about the original definition of what it means to be vegan, which does take into account that some circumstances may forbid an individual from doing what he, she, or they might actually want to do. For example, some disabled people, and I do include myself in this category, cannot eat exactly as they would wish. I, you know, having gone through the surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation that I did, I cannot eat some of the foods that I wish that I could eat. And if we blow that up, you know, as an anthropologist, if I think on a global scale, we also know that the reality is now that millions of people are depending to feed their families on being able to raise or fish, you know, chickens, fish, cows. And certainly we don't want to be in a position of looking them in the eye and saying that your goal should be to go vegan. I mean, that is not sensible. So I think the conversation and everyone's individual contribution should be more celebratory than it is. I think that's where, as I understand it, we all agree that there are reasons to recognize contributions that are serious contributions to meat, seafood, and dairy reduction for all kinds of reasons. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include Dynamic Sky Panorama Glass Roof, Front Row Massaging Seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the Multi-Terrain Select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. 
Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. I think my primary concern, pretty sure that my primary concern is ending industrial agriculture, ending factory farming of animals. I don't believe that not eating animals is inevitable. I guess that's the same as saying I do believe that people always eat some animals. But I would like to see the industrial production of animals end for a variety of reasons that I've spoken about elsewhere and and written about extensively. Brian, you and I particularly have worked on strategies for sort of making that happen. Barbara, I know that that's a concern of yours also, but I think there's a way in which coming from an extremely pragmatic place as I did, which was industrial farming is ruining the planet and our health, um, and then thinking about, oh yeah, it's there's also this animal welfare issue and that started to become more important to me. And then, Barbara, reading your work and work of some of your colleagues who've written about animal intelligence and animal emotions and so on, and thinking of animals in a different way, not as pets, not as food, but as fellow creatures who inhabit the same biosphere we do and are important, that's kind of been a change for me. And I, when I was writing Animal Vegetable Junk, and I think I did write at the end, that it had been an emotional and in a way even a spiritual journey that I would never considered myself a particularly spiritual person, but I was starting to feel kinship with other creatures in a way that I never really had. And I will say that this spring, without even thinking about it, I started routinely brushing ants off the counter instead of killing them. And it wasn't a decision, and I don't think it's particularly laudable, but why not? I think once you start thinking beyond factory farming, it sort of becomes a sort of philosophical fun thought experiment rather than actually super important. I mean, if we could, you know, move the 99% of animals that are raised in factory farms, you know, then we could have a discussion maybe 50 or 100 years from now about whether it's permissible to take take a life from an animal or you know, whether we should be focused on plant-based meat or cell culture meat. I mean, when we think about what the future of meat will be, um, if it's not factory farmed, what, regardless of what it is, my personal view is that they're all infinitely better than the status quo. And so though there are poor and ethical questions that are centered in some of these far-reaching idyllic food systems, 
I do believe we would be best to focus on specifically ending factory farming and not really getting caught up in some of these larger philosophical discussions, at least as it relates to actually advancing the goal of a more just food system. Well, this is good because we disagree. And I think that will add sparkle to the conversation. Uh, (laughs) uh, Where I do agree with you both, Mark and Brian, is that ending factory farming is an urgent priority. I mean, I think that is where we all come down. But if, in fact, we know that other animals are our sort of co-travelers on the earth, that they're conscious and thinking and feeling, I don't want to abandon discussion around the question of humane slaughter, which is, I think, really what we're saying. If in a future we have eliminated factory farming, but we have not eliminated the type of suffering that goes on on other farms for cows, again, who love and grieve, for chickens who have amazing memories and social relationships, goats who can solve problems you know, with such rigor that we don't normally attribute to them, fish who hunt cooperatively in the sea, the octopus again, who use tools. If we're willing to say that it's okay to kill them on a smaller scale because their days are not as full of suffering as they are in a factory farm, I don't think we are taking our advocacy far enough. So if killing a sentient animal for food is an ethical ill, when we have other choices, then it's an ethical ill across the board. So I don't want to lose that facet of the conversation or consign it to mere philosophy. That doesn't mean that I disagree with working on priorities, but these animal lives, I mean, these animals want to live. So I guess what I would conclude this part of what I'm saying with is our goal that we share is global food justice. I think we're all working towards that incrementally And I want us to think of that comprehensively, that we think of food justice for people, but we also think of other animals. And if we're going to talk about justice, then I think we need to keep in mind the full parameters of what that would be. I'm sympathetic to this viewpoint, and I might even take your point further by describing this idea of what I've been calling ethical whack-a-mole, where, like, imagine we get rid of factory farming maybe because of plant-based meat or cell-cultured meat, or even because we've managed to create high-welfare, regenerative food systems where animals are being slaughtered. But animal welfare hasn't really been the focus of it. Like, we haven't had a moral revolution in terms of how we relate to animals. Who's to say what the next issue will be? You know, maybe we'll just have designed a new system whereby we're very cruel to animals in a new way. And we see this historically. There are ways in which we've changed our relationship to animals, but because we didn't have a moral component to it, we were still left with and even increased, you know, the factory farming system. So I am sympathetic to the idea that there is value in thinking deeply about our relationship to animals and morality. Maybe, and I don't know if this is the case, maybe I'm just more cynical. 
I think I've gotten to a point in my, in my young, my relatively young life of 32, where I have trouble imagining a world in which we have managed to significantly alter our relationship to animals, which makes me really sad. And so I've gone to this point in my life where I've said, you know what, you know, telling people to pursue vegan before six is probably not going to work. Telling people to be reducitarian is not going to work. What we really have to do is find a way to cater to people's selfish interests and find, you know, delicious alternatives that don't involve animal cruelty, don't involve environmental degradation, don't involve maybe poor health, but remove the animal from the equation. Because of course, those animals don't care why they're not being tortured, right? I mean, as long as they're not being tortured, they'll be happy. Yes, I have very cynical days and very discouraged days. So I can <laughs> on this. But as an advocate or activist, I do feel very tied to the notion of aspiration that we can only imagine what we discuss. And so if we're going to really try to reimagine and revision a world of different relationships with animals, let's just have all of these questions on the table. And I am encouraged by talking with younger people. I'm encouraged by what I do believe is a revolution in you know, plant foods and in cellular cultivated meat. I agree with you that we need to be thinking about what omnivores want. That, you know, I'm so close to being vegan. I was told by a wonderful vegan activist that I shouldn't beat myself up about the last few percentage points that I haven't achieved. And I am glad that he said that to me. I still will be aspirational to do better in as so far as my health will allow. But I think that we can very practically and strategically talk about these initiatives for changing the food system that can include all animals, at least, you know, in terms of these, these, these hopes and our dreams and our putting practical issues into effect as much as we can. I mean, I would say, of course, we have room to have all, all questions on the table and all moral conversations, ethical conversations we, we have time for and we want to. I do think uh, from a health perspective, from, a, from an animal welfare perspective, from a, certainly an environmental and resource perspective, the important thing to do is to end industrial farming of animals. And that's got to be done by legislation. That's not going to be done because people decide they don't want to eat factory farmed meat anymore, I don't think. But I do wonder what, you know, if we were having this discussion 50 years from now, what's this discussion going to look like? Suppose if we have ended the worst of factory farming by then, say, or we're on our way to ending factory farming and we're eating, we are eating fewer animal products, then it does become more of a, of a moral and ethical issue because we've reduced, you know, most experts from both a health perspective and an environmental perspective think that countries that eat meat the way the United States does should be reducing our consumption by like 90%. It's a lot. <laughs> no one thinks that's unserious. What happens when we get to that point or we get to 50%? What's the conversation look like then? Is it more of a moral conversation or is it still a practical conversation? Well, we have a lot to work on beyond factory farming. A good amount of the animal advocacy work that I do involves trying to get animals out of biomedical laboratories. So 
you know, if we solve one thing, we will have other things to work on. Although perhaps in 50 years, we will not have that problem anymore. Since I do believe that the technologies that are not animal model based are going to carry us a good way into the future towards getting animals out of laboratories. But there's, there's so, you know, once you make that shift and you no longer see animals as beings to somehow use to consider them service beings as adjunct to your life to make your life better or more fun or something on that order of service that once you can't go back from that perspective let's try to put all this in some kind of context brian you you mentioned to me in an email i don't think we had this conversation but you mentioned to me in an email that reducitarianism was meaning newer things to you. And Barbara, you brought up social justice just a few minutes ago. I wonder if we can put this kind of eating lifestyle that is often taken very lightly or frivolously in the bigger context of what does food mean? What is food for? How do we make sure that everyone on earth has a right to nutritious and delicious food without ruining the planet, let's say? I wonder if we can just sort of look at big picture for a couple minutes here. Well, I'm looking forward to continued focus on alternative proteins, because I do think in terms of global food justice, that is a place that brings together the practical, the ethical, and the moral. So to me, that is a sort of answer to the big question, the continued development of finding ways to offer people in all kinds of situations a different way to find that they're healthy and that their kids are getting good food. And that, again, brings us back to why I find it very unsatisfying to continuously hear the world must go vegan without hearing that other part of the conversation. What are steps one through five for making sure that we're not focusing only on meat, seafood, and dairy to get people into healthy nutritional spaces. That's where I stand on this anyway. I think I agree with Barbara. I came at this issue from a very individualistic perspective. I wanted to get individual people to eat less meat by telling them that they should eat less meat and that they didn't necessarily have to be vegan. And what I quickly learned was that that was not going to be enough. And where I've shifted my perspective is thinking about the food system as a whole and what are the different strategies and tools that we can use to advance that goal. And I come to that conclusion because I don't know what's going to end factory farming. And that's the thing. When I look at all the available options, whether it's alternative proteins like plant-based meat or cell-cultured meat, whether it's legislation and policy, whether it's education, You can make a long list and all of those have pros and cons. I mean, it's not like any of those solutions are perfect. It's not like any of those are easy to implement. And you see this in all parts of the the food movement and all the different strategies that are being undertaken. And so my perspective is that we don't know what's going to end factory farming. We don't know what's going to reduce consumption of animal products. And so we need to remain humble and diversify our sort of investment in all of these different strategies 
and not be particularly, you know, gung ho about one particular strategy. We really need all of them. You know, I hope as time goes on, we'll start to see, look, you know, one of these solutions is working out. And then once you asked earlier about this idea of once factory farming is over, I think we'll then have to ask, well, whatever solution or combination of solutions created that outcome, we may have to address problems, new problems that come with it, right? So, but my take is always that that world, it's like a million times better than the world that we are living in. And so if we could get to that place, I'd be thrilled. But yeah, for now, we're going to have to embrace humility and acknowledge that there are, we don't know what's going to end it. And we are fortunate, at least, to have lots of people from lots of different perspectives working together when it's possible. I think that's going to be ultimately what's going to be the path toward advancing that shared mission for ending factory farming. I'm with you there. I think that was really great. And I know that this is not an argument because I know how layered both of your thinking is, but the phrase alternative protein bothers me some because legumes are the biggest source of protein on the planet, the most important source of protein to the largest number of people. And grains, especially whole grains, are the biggest source of healthy calories on the planet. And those things exist and have nourished humans forever with meat as a component or a sidelight or a highlight. It's only in the last hundred years or less that anyone could even think of eating 200 pounds of animal products a year or whatever the American average American consumes right now. So the alternatives exist. It's a function of re-educating people and of people appreciating that largely plant-based food or mostly plant-based food or whatever we want to call it is satisfying, wonderful, delicious, um, and also environmentally sound, which can't be said about the alternatives, about the factory farming of meat alternative anyway. In keeping with what I once called the less meatarian theme of this conversation, what Brian's calling reducitarian, with our general close but not quite vegan theme, I'm going to give you a recipe of mine, which is pasta with peas, prosciutto, and lettuce. You will notice that prosciutto is meat. However, you only need, well, here's the ingredient list, and you'll see. Salt, olive oil, about three tablespoons, two ounces of thinly sliced prosciutto, so one-eighth of a pound, cut into half-inch wide strips, a pound of pasta, two tablespoons of butter, one shallot minced, black pepper as you like, two cups of peas, preferably fresh but frozen or fine, one head of bib or Boston lettuce, or you could use some romaine, about six ounces, cored with the leaves cut into three-quarter inch slices, a half a cup chicken or vegetable stock or dry white wine or more as needed, and a cup of finely grated Parmesan cheese. Here are the steps. Bring a large pot of water to a boil and salt it. Uh, Meanwhile, put one tablespoon of oil in a small skillet over medium-high heat. When it's hot, add the prosciutto and cook, turning occasionally until it's crisp, about four to five minutes. Set that aside. When the water boils, add the pasta and cook until just tender, then drain the pasta, reserving some of the cooking liquid. While the pasta is cooking in a large skillet, melt the butter with the remaining two tablespoons of oil and add the shallot, sprinkle with some salt and pepper, and cook until the shallot begins to soften three to five minutes. Then add the peas, 
the lettuce, and the stocker wine, and cook until the peas turn bright green and the lettuce is wilted, about five minutes. Add the cooked pasta to the pan and continue cooking and stirring until everything is just heated through, adding extra stock or some reserved cooking liquid if needed to moisten. Toss with the cheese, garnish with the prosciutto, adjust the seasoning to taste, and serve. That's a great old favorite of mine. I want to say thank you to my thoughtful, smart guests, Brian Cateman and Barbara King. You can follow Brian on Instagram and Twitter at Brian Cateman. That's B-R-I-N-K-A-T-E-M-A-N. And on Facebook at Reduceatarian. That's Reduceatarian. I'm sure you can get that. And check out Brian's most recent book, Meet Me Halfway. Meet followed M-E-A-T. Ha ha. Follow Barbara on Twitter BJ King APE, BJ APE. And check out her most recent work, Animals Best Friends, putting compassion to work for animals in captivity and the wild. Thanks for joining me. And I want to thank, as usual, our producer, Kate Bittman, our engineer, Davis Lloyd, and our friend Moby for the theme music. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and consider subscribing to The Bitman Project at bitmanproject.com or find me at markbitman.com or at bitman on Twitter or at markbitman on Instagram. Thanks again for joining and see you next week when we will have somebody awesome. Take care. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.